want to say welcome to The Currency. This is episode number 55. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I am glad you're here today. If you're listening to this show as a recorded broadcast, please know that you can jump in live. We got a bunch of people in the chat room. This show broadcasts live on YouTube. It's Sunday at 4 p.m. I think that's the time we're going to lock in on, but Sunday's at 4 p.m. Just go to YouTube and look for Mike Gaston. That's me, G-A-S-T-I-N. Subscribe to my channel, hit the notification bell, and you'll be notified uh, possibly. It seems like YouTube's a little funny about that, but you'll be notified when the podcast is going live. But guys, I'm glad to have you along. We're going to talk about Kodak, drugs, and rock and roll today. We're going to talk about Kodak, drugs, and rock and roll. So I'm glad to have you guys along. I've been looking at the news, though. There's been some crazy things going on in the news, and um, it's hard to keep up. You know, for a while, uh, as a content creator, you'd look at the news and go, well, what is there to talk about? And all there was was you know, pandemic 24-7. The pandemic's still a thing, obviously. People are still talking about that. And, uh, you know, the, if the news media and the politicians have their way, I mean, we'll never stop talking about that. I think uh, Dr. Fauci, America's, America's like doom and gloom in chief is saying, oh yeah, coronavirus is never going away. It's just never going away. Could you imagine being a 10-year-old kid hearing that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to queue up in line, stay six feet apart, wear a mask everywhere you go and everything you do. Could you imagine thinking about life? I mean, all of us on this stream, our whole lives up to this moment, we've had a lot of freedom. Even if you're living in a country that's not that free, you're still allowed to go out without a mask on. You're probably allowed to be closer than six feet. Uh, I know there's some countries where it's like, well, if you're a female and a male, you better not be six feet you better keep six feet because uh, you're going to get in trouble if, you, if you're publicly showing any affection, etc. But at the end of the day, I mean, to grow up thinking that you've got to be hermetically sealed, that you, that you can't just go about your business like mankind has been doing for millennia, kind of tough, tough prospect. You know, you look at me, I'm one foot in the grave. I mean, look how, look how gray I am. If it wasn't for a little bit of black in my mustache, boy, you'd think I was in my 80s. But anyway, a lot going on in the news in, re, you know, in recent times, but for a while there, all you would see was, was all coronavirus all the time. Then, of course, the uh, protests and the riots took over. Those things still loom large, but you're starting to see a lot of business news. You know, I mentioned in the last podcast, Apple announcing that it's going to be creating its own uh, processors, microchips, and that uh, Intel just came out and said, um, yeah, we're going to stop making processors. That means... Uh, this giant company, the, the Taiwan microprocessor something or other semiconductor company, they're going to be taking over production for AMD, for Apple, for Intel. You get all, and I'm actually working on a video that'll be coming out pretty soon on this whole dynamic in the industry. But there's a lot of interesting news going on. But that's just me rambling, guys. Today we want to talk about Kodak drugs and rock and roll. So I'm not sure if you heard the news, but this week, this last week on Tuesday. The Donald Trump administration announced that it is awarding Kodak, and let's see what the number was. It's awarding Kodak $765 million in a loan. They're giving Kodak a $765 million loan to help Kodak begin to manufacture the ingredients that go into pharmaceuticals. So Kodak, uh, famous for kind of inventing, and, and this is arguable, they didn't really invent the camera. Kodak did not invent photography. Kodak invented, uh, I guess, um, uh, the film technology that allowed the consumer to start doing 
its own photography. You know, Kodak didn't invent it, but but George Eastman, the founder of Kodak, very interesting fellow, if, uh, if you do any research on him, and that's whose visage we had in the opening five minutes as the music was playing. That was George Eastman in there. But Eastman came up with a way to develop film, to make and develop films, that you could take photos uh, and then send your film into Kodak, Eastman Kodak Company here in Rochester, New York, at their headquarters, and they would develop those photos and send them back to you. That was kind of the technology that Kodak developed. Kodak became massive, huge company. I mean, billions and billions of dollars uh, all over the globe. I mean, Kodak was quite a thing. And if you lived here in Rochester, so I was born in 1967. I lived here all my life. I've moved around a lot, but I've come back to Rochester. But I lived in, I've lived in New Jersey, Ohio, different parts of the United States. I've lived in South Africa. I mean, I've, I've lived and traveled a little bit. But you come back to Rochester, if you grew up here, Kodak was massive. Now, we have three kind of large companies in Rochester. We had three large companies that were headquartered here. You had Kodak. You had Xerox, which used to be the Haloid Corporation. But you had Xerox of the eponymous Xerox machine, Xerox copiers. And then you had Bausch & Laum that made lenses and glasses. But those were the three big companies in Rochester. Rochester was doing pretty well back in the day. Kind of considered a high-tech city. Um, lots of activity, lots of manufacturing jobs. These were good paying jobs. You know, you could get out of high school, get a job at Kodak and have one income and own a house, own a car to have a boat, go fishing, a humble boat. I'm not talking about a yacht, but go fishing on the weekends, you know, go to your hunting cabin. You could live a really great working class life. You could put your kids through school, take vacations, have a few toys, maybe a snowmobile. I mean, you could have a good time with your life. Kodak was interesting because in the Rochester economy, there was this thing called the Kodak bonus. So, so Kodak was really good at making sure they never had a union. Kodak has never been unionized. Uh, Xerox is unionized. At least they were. I don't know about ba Bausch & Lomb if their manufacturing facility got unionized, but Kodak was never unionized. And one of the reasons they were able to do that is because they paid people really well. They were generous with their pay, generous with their benefits. And they had this thing they called the Kodak bonus. So what, the, what Kodak's philosophy was, if you take care of people and you, and you pay them well enough, they won't want to unionize. And if they don't want to unionize, that's good for us because then we don't have to deal with the nonsense that comes along with unions. Now, any of you guys watching are union members, hey, um, good for you. <laughs> Uh, but I'm not big on unions as a free market kind of guy, conservative, but that's okay. That's immaterial. So Kodak had this thing called the Kodak bonus. And what that was is you could be, you could be a factory worker. And this is back in the 1970s. Think about this in the 1970s, you're a factory worker. You might walk away with $1,500 or $3,000 at the end of the year. That could be like a quarter of your income added on top of at, at bonus time. And so I remember as a kid, right around Kodak bonus time, all the television and radio ads would be like promoting things like new cars and, you know, RV campers and just all these kind of consumer goods were being promoted. And this is back in the 70s and early 80s because it was Kodak bonus time. The Rochester economy was awash with cash come Kodak bonus time. Uh, Kodak took their profits. It was probably some, calculated on some type of profit sharing and your seniority and so on. But people could walk away with a ton of money. And it was a real thing. And... Um, and a lot of people, you talk to some of the older people here in Rochester and they're like, oh, they, they missed the days. You know, salespeople, smaller businesses, the, the Rochester economy was really anchored on Kodak. Kodak put so much 
money into the pockets of the employees, the labor force here, so much money into the pockets of the kind of support retail industry, and then so much money into other support industries like plastic injection molding and tool and dye shops and all these, all these industries that would support Kodak and their needs. So, so that was the heyday. And I, I don't even know, I should have looked it up. I have no idea, but like at its, at its zenith, Kodak was a multi-billion dollar company. Kodak, uh, actually before, before Tuesday's announcement, and this is important to pay attention to, Kodak, before Tuesday's announcement, was its market cap, its market capitalization was $100 million. So you think about this, a, comp- a corporation that was, that was worth billions and billions of dollars. And, and if George is on the stream today, I, it doesn't look like he is. I'm not getting... Uh, I'm not getting um, any comments from George, but George is on the stream or somebody else. It'd be great if you'd look up what the market cap of Kodak was at its zenith. But it was before Tuesday's announcement by President Trump, a $100 million market cap. That's, I don't even know if that's a small cap company anymore. That might be a micro cap. I'm not even sure like what that is, but that's a small cap stock. That's a, it was trading for a buck, two, three bucks a share. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is a company that... that transformed photography and image taking, image making uh, for generations across the world. But they were $100 million market capitalization. I have clients that big. I work with privately held companies. I work with the CEOs, marketing teams, product development teams of privately held companies. I have clients that big, privately held family businesses that big. And I'm thinking like in revenue, annual revenue, they're making as much as Kodak's market valuation. I, have, I work with companies whose market capitalization, if they were publicly traded, would be bigger than that, their net worth. If you look at their assets, their branding, their intellectual property, their revenue, et cetera. So it, it, blows, it, it blows my mind that, this, that Kodak has become such a small thing. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, here's the thing. It kind of calls into question this whole deal. So there's George. He said he's going to join a little bit later today. I'll just put that up on screen. Hey, George, good to see you, my friend. That's fine. You, jo- you join whenever you want to. Watch it after the fact. I was only asking if you're here because you're so good at looking up uh, questions for me. But Kodak, $100, $100 million capitalization. Now, they were just given a 700 and what was that number? $765 million loan. So let's say as you do your personal finances, uh, and Pauline's right. She's saying they're like Blockbuster. They couldn't adapt. That's totally... And we're going to talk about that. We're going to, get, we're going to take some time with this. I want to talk about the deal, the, the, the elements of the deal. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, like why Kodak? Why did Kodak get chosen for this? I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the government's involvement in all this and deconstruct that a little bit and um, give a little bit of my analysis. So we're going to cover some of that stuff. Totally, Pauline is right that they have not been able to adapt. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I've, I've had a front row seat to a lot of that stuff. And I want to share some of that. But, but the deal itself is, is 7.65 times larger than, mar- than Codex total market cap. So if you think about, let's say you do a personal financial statement. You go through and you list all your assets, your house, your car, whatever you've got, your savings account, whatever money you have. You list that all in one column. On the other column, you list all the debt that you have. What do you still owe on your house? What do you owe on your car? What's your credit card balance? Hopefully for you, it's zero. You list all those things, stocks, bonds, investments, so on. At the bottom, you get a number. When you subtract one from the other, you got a number. 
That's usually your net worth. It's usually what you're worth. Maybe you're worth $100,000. Maybe you're worth a million dollars. Whatever that, that's your net worth. A market capitalization works a little differently than that. But if you look at Kodak, and you just try to simplify this, what are they worth? So if you're, let's say you're worth $100,000. Who's going to give you a $700,000 loan? If you, if you multiply that by seven, who's going to give you a $765,000 loan based on $100,000 in net worth? I mean, I, I can't even think of what Kodak's income needs to be to make that a good bet. You know, when I owned a business, and I own a business now, but it's me and one other employee. But before, when I had my agency, I might go to the bank for a loan. I might say, hey, I want to get a loan. I'm trying to expand. I want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, they're going to look at a couple things. They're going to look at my debt to income ratio. If you're making a dollar, how much do you owe? What's your debt to income ratio? They're going to look at my cash on hand. They're going to look at things like contracts, assets, and so on. And the bank is going to come back and go, hey, I'm sorry, we can't give you this loan. Your debt to income ratio isn't right. You don't have enough assets. You don't have enough cash flow, et cetera. Kodak is a company that just recently was telling the world, we don't know that we're going to make it. They make their statement to their shareholders and they're like, we really don't know that we're a viable, a going viable concern. We're not sure that we're going to be here tomorrow. And you think about that. I mean, here's a company worth pennies of what they used to be worth saying, we're not even sure we're going to be here tomorrow. And yet on Tuesday, they landed almost an $800 million loan. Now the loan has to be paid back over 25 years. They've got to pay that back. And the idea behind the, the loan is that, the, you know, the United States government under its, um, oh, what's the, what's the movement? But, you know, ever since the whole coronavirus, so coronavirus is kind of exposed for everyone, the fact that our supply chains, our resources, They've been offshored too much. We're vulnerable. If you remember back, America went through this. I don't know about other countries, but the whole ventilator. Oh, my God, we need ventilators. Well, we can't even make ventilators. You know, we can't make the things that we need. Well, we need PPE, personal protective, protective equipment. We can't even make that on our own. We couldn't just fire up because a lot of Americans are like, well, let's just make them. People are like, you can't. It's all offshored. Everything's offshored. And so I think the government turned around and said, look, we got to start making stuff at home. We got to start reshoring a lot of this industry so that we're in a better place strategically and tactically the next time there's a problem. Because I think we're realizing there's going to be a lot of problems going forward in the world we live in. This idea of globalization and the global economy and just-in-time manufacturing and lean manufacturing where you're not storing equipment, you're not storing inventory, everything's just kind of flowing, this one big happy family across the globe container ships going from China, China to America, America to China, everybody's happy. Well, that got disrupted because of a, of a uh, microscopic virus. You can't even see your enemy anymore. And so uh, H1MB says, good stream, have to go though. All right, H1MB, but thanks for popping in, my friend. Thanks for popping in. We'll catch you next time. Make sure you watch it after the fact. Uh, but the whole world's predicated on this network of globalized manufacturing, globalized technology, globalized relationships. And coronavirus has blown that to smithereens. And I add to that on top of the trade war between America and China, et cetera. And you realize as a government, you go, look, we got to do a better job of making sure that our interests are put first. How do you do that? We well, start bringing some things to your own shores. So for instance, pharmaceuticals, you might not realize this, but like take acetaminophen, for example, uh, which is essentially, you know, like Advil, it's, it's, it's a pain reliever and it's used, no, that's ibuprofen. Acetaminophen, I think is in aspirin, maybe Tylenol, maybe Tylenol, but it's, a, it's like 
pain reliever. But it's used in, in tons of drugs. It's a core, core component, and it's active ingredient in tons of drugs. Well, the whole world supply, the majority of it comes from China and India, and mainly China. But China and India control the acetaminophen uh, supply. But what do you do when you can't get headache medicine? What do you do when you can't get medicine that's used in all kinds of applications and active ingredient? So the government's saying, look, we need to Tylenol. Pauline's saying Tylenol. You're right, Pauline. It is Tylenol. But the government's saying uh, we want to bring a lot of that stuff on back home, not just pharmaceuticals, but pharmaceuticals is one of them. And so they went to Kodak and said, well, we want you to start manufacturing. Or maybe Kodak went to them and said, we can do it. But Kodak is saying, we're going to manufacture the materials that go into these pharmaceuticals. We're going to create the active ingredients. And a lot of people are saying, well, why Kodak? Why Kodak? We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's talk a little bit about the, the, the aspects of the deal. So the Kodak uh, CEO and chairman, executive chairman, his name is Jim Continenza. Continenza. Jim Continenza. You've never heard of him? Jim was previously with a company called, what were they called? Uh, it was like STI Prepaid. So Jim was the president of some prepaid card company. This, this tells you how far Kodak has fallen. It, uh, they used to be a giant. They could command some of the best CEOs. You know, not that he was that great, but the guy that used to run HP came over. I, I never liked him that much, Ant, Ant, Antonio Perez. But the, the head of HP came over and took over Kodak and ran it for a while. A lot of times Kodak would promote from within. Kay Whitmore and, and Dan Karp and some of these other guys, they promote from within or they poach. But they're bringing in some heavy hitters. Uh, we've had to go all the way. And not, hey, Jim, if you're watching this, nothing against you, buddy, but you were the president of a prepaid card company. And prepaid card companies, not for nothing, they're kind of like the bottom feeder of consumer goods. Like, when's the last time you bought a prepaid card? I mean, who are... Who's buying prepaid cards? I'll tell you. We've tried to, my wife and I, because my wife is South African. She's got family overseas. And so we might buy a prepaid card once in a while so that we get a better rate to call family. But you know what? Now we just use Skype or something. You can buy some time. You get some deals. We're not doing prepaid cards. Uh, we're not doing prepaid cards at all. We're essentially using other, other options. So the people using prepaid cards are usually... Uh, foreign nationals living in, in a country like America, they want to call home to India, they want to call home to Mexico. You watch a soccer match, you watch a cricket match on television, that's where prepaid cards get advertised. They're advertising to people that are living away from their home country in the U.S., want to be able to call family members on the cheap. Nothing wrong with that. But to me to say, well, we poached the CEO of this prepaid card company that no one's ever heard of. STI is like a nothing. This is not a big, this wasn't like, uh, you know, AT&T or some big company that you've all heard of. This is some minor player that's been acquired by other minor players in a, in a backwoods kind of bottom-feeding industry. That's, that's where Jim Continenza comes from. So he's the executive chairman of the board and the CEO of Kodak. Never heard of him. All right, He's been in that role since February of 2019. N nothing on the radar. Companies continuing to decline. They come out with statements recently saying, we don't even know if we're going to make it. We don't even know if Kodak's long for this world. Now, on Monday, the day before this deal came out, and this is fascinating, the Monday, the day before the deal came out, the board voted to give Jim Continenza 1.5 million share option. He got a one point. I'm sorry, 1.75 million shares. He got options for 1.75 million shares. These options were not in his contract. They weren't publicized anywhere. This is nothing that anyone's ever known about. But all of a sudden on Monday, Jim Continenza 
and and some others. Some others got some like seven hundred thousand dollars worth of shares, but Jim got one point seven five million share options from the board. The very next day, President Trump's administration comes out and says, "Hey, congratulations, Kodak. We're just awarding you seven hundred and sixty-five million dollars." in a loan to be paid back over the next 25 years so that you can fire up pharmaceutical component ingredient manufacturing to help us reshore our capabilities to America. Think about that. One day before the board just mysteriously votes this guy, huge share option. He, he made like $85 million in a day from the moment that the board voted to give him that share option to the moment that the Trump administration, $85 million. Now, the interesting thing is those shares, they vest instantly, which means the minute that Jim received those shares, he's allowed to sell them, to cash them in. Could you imagine that? So the government is going to give Kodak almost $800 million. And of that $765 million, Jim, if he wants to, can just cash in and walk away with $85 million of those dollars. No strings attached. Think about that. No strings attached. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. Now, you know me. I'm not one to attack the Trump uh, administration. I'm kind of a right-leaning guy, so I'm just trying to get organized here. Uh, I'm not hostile to President Trump. I don't love everything he does. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of Kodak. We'll talk about that in a minute because we're going to talk about why I think this is money. Uh, I'm, I'm very hesitant about how this money is being spent. I'm very hesitant about Kodak being given hundreds of millions of dollars uh, based on their history. So yeah, so $765 million goes to Kodak, and then immediately Jim Continenza walks away, if he wants to, with 85 plus million. Let me just take a quick look here. Uh, I want to welcome Kareem, Kareem Babudi. He says, when I think about Kodak or other companies that are fading or have faded away, I wonder what would happen to a company like Google too? That's a great question, Kareem, because... You can never take any one of these companies for granted. We tend to think, and I'm sure our, our forefathers and foremothers and four sisters and four brothers, <laughs> they wondered too. They were like, hey, what could ever topple Kodak? What could ever topple Microsoft? What could ever topple IBM? You think of these giant blue chip companies, you go, they'll never go away. They're just, they're, they're giant. They've, they're on top of their game. They dominate. They're awesome. And uh, you look today and you're like, what could topple uh, Bell Laboratories? What could topple uh, Xerox? I mean, Xerox came up with the graphical user interface that Steve Jobs and friends poached and used for the, the, the Apple. Look at Microsoft. I remember when people were like, Apple is barely going to make it. Microsoft will dominate forever. And where's Microsoft today? They're still a company. Don't get me wrong. But Apple, by the way, talking about news, Apple just the other day, is now, according to market capitalization, the, the globe, the world's biggest company by market capitalization, beating out, uh, I forget the company, but a Saudi oil company. Um, it's, uh, I, I, the name escapes me. But essentially, Apple now, according to market capitalization, largest company in the world. I mean, think about that. So you're right, Kareem. You think about Kodak. People back in the day would think to themselves, I'm sure of it. Kodak will never go away. I think this is part of Kodak's problem. They took for granted who they were and what they had, and they just assumed they just assumed we could do no wrong. 
and we've got time. We don't have to figure things out. And I'll share some stories with you guys to illustrate that in just a minute. So yeah, what about Google? Can Google survive forever? Uh, you know, and, and I think there are different factors. I mean, with Kodak, they got fat and sassy and they got upended. Uh, on the other hand, I could look at somebody like a Google and say, there are other factors that could destroy Google. You could have government backlash. You could have civil wars. I mean, different things, technology changes that could put a company like Google on the rear end. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Wouldn't be good, but it wouldn't necessarily be bad. Uh, let me just take a look here. Top Raps, welcome. I think this is the first time I've, I've seen you comment in the stream. Thanks for joining. Your previous video got me doing a big-ass think bubble board for future moves in our company. For example, brand, production development, and investments, marketing, et cetera. It was great. Thanks. Well, I'm glad that you uh, watched that video, and I'm glad that it was impactful for you. That's my, that's my desire is to help entrepreneurs and help just people live life on their own terms. And part of that is equipping them to think differently, to ask the right questions and to just tackle life a little bit differently. So thanks for taking the, mind, the time and let me know that. I'm, I'm grateful to know that. Pines of Zero, welcome. You show them prepaid card companies, Mike. That's right. I got I to gotta drag them a little bit because there's nothing wrong with a prepaid card company. They actually provide a good service. Like they help people save some money. They're not, they're not like uh, vultures preying on poor people. But on the other hand, if I think of Kodak and what it used to represent, and they're pulling their, their CEO and, and, and uh, board chair, executive chairman from a prepaid card company that's not even a big player, it's just like some minor player. Heck, I could run a prepaid card company. I could run Kodak. Call me. By the way, I still have not received a call from Big Boy. I think this is day like 21 of no call from Big Boy. If you, if you listen back to a couple... Uh, pre, if you're just joining me, I, I joked, I, I did a, a podcast on Big Boy a couple episodes ago and said, hey, if they want to, they should give me a call. I could help them fix their marketing. Still no call from Big Boy, folks. Pines with Zero, a divergent view, immediately vested stock options are just stocks and a way to bypass executive remuneration standards. I think you're right. So you're saying it's just a, it's a workaround. And, and I agree with you. I think, um, you know, some, some people are arguing, well, they, they did this for Jim and some of the other executives. It's highly unusual, a number of people are saying. But they said they did this for them because they want to incentivize them to vote for things that might dilute their existing holdings. So if they voted for this big loan, et cetera, it may have diluted some of their value that they're already holding in the company. So say, hey, we're going to throw a ton of money and a ton of stocks at you and you can cash in any time to kind of incentivize, incentivize them to vote in favor of something that would be good for the company. But here's the problem I have. If you're a board member and you're an executive running the business and you're placing your own interests before those of the organization and the institution and the other shareholders, then shame on you. You're actually derelict in your job. And that, I, have an, I have an issue. I have no problem with executives making money and being incentivized. I think incentivization is a fantastic thing. On the other hand, the way that they structure these incentivizations, they become more like it's more like they're, they're, they're burglarizing the company. It's like they're raiding the pantry. Yeah, hundreds of millions are coming in. We're just going to grab as much for ourselves as we can. And I'm not one that usually attacks any type of you know, free market move. But to me, this isn't free market. The free market would have demanded that Kodak came to the table with innovations and, and solve problems that people actually want and create a real value for the market and for consumers and, and, and by doing so, they would be awarded for that. And this is not free market. This isn't true capitalism. This isn't free market things happening here. This is taxpayer dollars being thrown at a company to help this company create jobs, which is politically expedient, and at the same time, help bring 
this technology back to the U.S. to repatriate this capability. And I'm okay with that. I think bringing capabilities back to your nation to help your nation be strategically positioned to thrive in the future, fantastic. I'm not a big globalist. I'm not saying like, oh, this is bad, globalism good, nationalism bad. I'm probably the opposite if I had to pick a side. I'm not against globalization, by the way, but I'm just saying if I had to pick a side, I'd pick the nationalist side versus the globalism side. But free market dynamics would demand that Kodak figures out a way to bring goods and services to the market that are valuable, that they can produce, sell at a profit, and run their business well, and they can grow. That's what the original Kodak did. This is not free market. Do you know that Kodak went from being a $100 million market capitalization within a day? At the end of the week, I think they closed out at a billion, close to a billion dollars market capitalization. Their market capitalization went to almost a billion dollars based on an announcement and a loan that they're going to get from the government. Think about that. It's just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Let's look at some more comments here. Uh, Pauline asked a great question. Everyone remember Yahoo? Oh, my gosh. Boy, and Yahoo's similar to Kodak in a way, for me at least. You know, Kodak through the years, if they could make a bad decision, they made a bad decision. If they could lose money, Kodak would lose money. And I know I've got a lot of friends, a lot of loved ones, a lot of business relationships that are tied to Kodak. I've got a long history with Kodak. And I'm sorry, I, I get so irritated with Kodak, so frustrated by Kodak. But if there was a way to be conservative, if there was a way to do something uh, not the smart, innovative, dynamic way, if there was a way to avoid forging forward. If there was a, a way to avoid grabbing the brass ring, ringing the bell, fill in whatever little idiom or metaphor or cliche you want to. If there was a way to not win, that's the way that Kodak would choose. I remember uh, product development process. Kodak was trying to come up, you know, we've got digital technology. People are sharing photographs online. They're, you know, uh, Facebook starting to become a thing where people are you know, chatting to one another. And Kodak uh, tries to come up with this product. And this is just so, it's just so indicative of the Kodak approach. They try to come up with this product. And so they're going through this development process and, and they've come up with this device. It's, it's kind of like this computer that you can hold in your hands, this big screen. And it's all designed for working with photographs. I don't think you can take a photo with it, but you can share photographs. And it's going to have software on it that allows family members to share photos and comment on them and, and enjoy them together. So the whole idea is like, how do we help people enjoy photography? How do we enjoy, how do we help people enjoy photography? And they came up with this piece of hardware. The software to them was immaterial. Piece of hardware that would allow people to share and enjoy photographs. And I was talking to some of the designers and developers on this project. And I'm asking questions like, well, uh, I know that this is back. This is back a few years. I know the hardware market can be tough. The only way that this is going to work is that you have enough people buy this piece of hardware. Oh yeah, no, they understand that, but they've got a huge market and they're going to be able to get it out there. Because because if I'm sharing, it's like the fax machine. It becomes more valuable the more people have it. And I'm like, well, what other things can you do with it? Well, you know, you can comment on it, you can store your photos, you can favorite them, or you can share them out to people. But it was all about photography. And it was all about having this device. And I just was skeptical, skeptical. Now, around the same time, Facebook's coming out. I'm like, well, I can already do this on Facebook. No, they were convinced this was going to be, this was going to be great. 
It's going to be great. People are going to love it. And they invested a bunch of money into this. Well, right when they started to do market testing, right when they started to get this kind of into focus groups and the consumer hands to figure it out, Apple released the iPad. And you remember the iPad coming out. You could do all kinds of things. You could read the newspaper with the iPad. You could check your email with the iPad. You could take photographs eventually. I don't think you I don't remember if the original iPad would allow you to take photographs. You could synchronize it with your photo album. I remember that much. You could take photos with your phone, but I don't remember the iPad being able to take, I had an original iPad. I don't think that that could take photos. Can't remember. doesn't matter. You could have your whole photo library. You could use social media on your iPad. You could browse the web on your iPad. You could do everything on your iPad. You could do the whole thing that Kodak was saying. You could share photos and comment on photos, store your photos, organize your photos. Yet, you could do everything else with it. You could do everything else. You could, your whole life, you could read magazines. You could actually do some creation. You could type on it. You could text on it. You could do all this stuff on the iPad. And that, that's what drove me crazy because that was so classic Kodak. They were so stuck with the idea of photography, so stuck with the idea of photography that they couldn't look at the world in synthetic and innovative ways. They just were stuck within a metaphor, within a paradigm, within a context. And that was all about photography. And they, their products were all about photography. And they didn't see the trends that were going on in the wider world. They didn't understand the digitization of the human experience. And, and I don't necessarily think that's a great thing. They could only see it through the lens of photography. It's a one-trick pony. And so, and so the, the market just destroyed. Before their ID even made it public, no one ever even saw it except for people that were involved on the inside, I'm assuming. I mean, it never really made the light of day. I don't remember any news stories about this. It was in development, and it got destroyed. I remember, you know, hanging out with the guys afterwards that were a part of this, and they eventually had to roll out the company. I mean, the company just laid off thousands and thousands of employees, not because of that one failure, but they had just one failure after another. Do you know that in 1975, Kodak actually developed the technology that drives all digital photography? Do you know that Kodak invented digital photography? And what did they do? When they invented that, they looked at all their film processing business. They looked at the acres and acres of film processing business that they had here in Rochester, New York. And they said, well, we don't want to cannibalize that. If we put digital photography out in the market, it'll destroy our film business. We can't do that. And so they put that technology on a shelf in a binder and let it sit there. And that technology eventually committed patricide. It killed the father. It, it, the child killed the father. It's, it's digital technology that destroyed Kodak. Now, I can't, Kodak destroyed itself. It, it had created the technology already. And, uh, but that's just an example, and I'm going on and on. Let me just jump in here. Welcome, Jordy Fitzgerald. Jordy says hello. Hey, Jordy, nice to have you along. How you doing today? And um, Kushdeep Baywa. Hi, Mike. Finally catching the live stream. Kushdeep, glad to have you along. Thank you for joining today. Let's see what Pythons with Zero says. The problem here is that things disconnect from the basics. Stock vesting is the solution of the principal problem in the long run, not in fact, a bonus slash raise. That's why it's wrong. Yeah. And if you were to look at this deal, where on Monday, Jim and compatriots get what amounts to millions of options, and then Tuesday, the announcement, that's a bonus. You can't tell me that that just was serendipitous. You can't tell me that that was coincidental. They knew this deal was going to be announced. How could they not? It's not like Trump would surprise them. They're like sitting there going, hey, let's give Jim a bonus. Let's call it a stock uh, let's, let's give Jim uh, a bunch of stocks. He's just doing a great job. We love him. Great guy. Fantastic guy. Everybody loves him. Jim, thank you so much for coming over from the, uh, 
prepaid card business. We're so glad to have you here. And then, holy smokes, did you guys catch the news this morning? Did you hear? We, ju we just got a loan. I had no idea we are getting this loan. They knew. Obviously, they knew. It's not illegal, by the way. What they did is not illegal. But it just calls into question, like, what's a priority for Kodak? And, uh, and it's just ridiculous. Pines of Zero says, well, they're named after a bear. Go figure in stock valuation. Well, that would be a Kodiak bear. Kodiak, K-O-D-I-A-K. Kodiak bear, I believe, or bear from the Kodiak region in Alaska, but Kodak. Yeah, they, uh, they kind of did take that and kind of bastardize that a little bit. George says this should be legal. A lot of people argue that it should be legal. You know, I'm not really big on publicly traded companies to begin with, although I'm surrounded by Apple products. I use all kinds of products that are made by comp publicly traded companies. I realize sometimes you need publicly traded companies to get the type of cash necessary to do things like create beautiful cars, airplanes, and so on. I'm not hostile to them, but yeah, I, I hear you. They should clean a lot of this up. Pauline says, yeah, there was no camera on the original iPad. I thought so. Thanks for checking on that, Pauline. I wondered. Um, and then Pines Zero says, it's a bonus on the useful idiot dash useful butcher spectrum. Yes, good, good uh, talking point there. So you've got a company that goes from $100 million in market capitalization all the way up to almost a billion dollars in market cap, all because the, the, um, all because the government announces that, yeah, uh, we are going to give these boys some money so they can start making some good drugs. We need those drugs. We don't want those Chinese drugs. We don't want that, those Indian drugs. We want that good American nationalistic Great drugs. So that's what's going on. So, so yeah, so on Tuesday that got announced. Uh, let me just go through a little bit more here. Um, so what's estimated is that if Kodak is able to fire up production, they're going to be able to make about one quarter of all the active ingredients needed in the major drugs in the U.S. They'll be able to provide. Now, some people are confused. They go, well, why is Kodak making drugs? Why not give this money to Bayer or some of these other you know, Pfizer, there's some American drug companies. I think Bayer is a German, might be. But um, why not give it to an American pharmaceutical company? Kodak's not necessarily going to be making the final products. They're going to be making the ingredients that go into the final products. So companies like Pfizer and so on will be buying from them. And um, that's, that's kind of the plan. The Kodak's going to manufacture the chemicals. They're going to sell those to the folks that manufacture, you know, formulate and manufacture the pharmaceuticals to the end user. So that's that. The idea is that the loan has to be paid back over 25 years. I don't know any more around that deal. Um, you know, I don't know what the interest rate is and all that kind of stuff. The idea is that the American taxpayers can be paid back. We'll see how that goes. Here's the thing to keep in mind. Uh, I remember back, so, so when I bought, I bought an agency. I bought this uh, design group that did a lot of branding work and they didn't do a ton of branding. I, I brought the branding piece. It's not that they didn't do branding. They did a lot of corporate identity work. They did a lot of packaging. Um, they did a lot of illustration. They did some web, web design. We did a lot more of that. Uh, so, so this company did a lot of like more tactical design, but they did it for important companies. So I, I don't want to denigrate the work saying it was all tactical until I showed up. It became so strategic. That's not true. Uh, I brought a strategic element. I brought more of a marketing element to the business, but the, but they were doing some really impressive work for some impressive companies. And Kodak, when I bought the company, through the different clients at Kodak that we worked for, represented 65% of the company's revenue. 
65% of the company's revenue was coming from one client, Kodak. And really, when I looked at it, it wasn't coming from tens or hundreds of people at Kodak. I mean, it was coming from one main guy and a couple others would send work our way. So one of the first things I did, I remember sitting down with the team and saying, look, one of the first things we have to do is we have to get off of uh, relying on Kodak. We've got to stop doing so much work for Kodak. We need to be doing work for other kinds of clients. I remember a number of people almost being offended by that. Now, they, it, just because they didn't, I think they'd never thought of it this way. I, they were so proud of the work that they did for Kodak, and rightfully so. These people were so talented, and they'd done great work for Kodak, and Kodak fed their families. They were proud of that. But, but in my mind, if you lose Kodak, the company's gone. If, if, I, if Kodak, for whatever reason, went away, then I'd have to lay off two-thirds, three-quarters of the business and figure out how to survive. And so for me as an owner, Kodak's a huge liability. And, I, and I've watched through the years how Kodak would treat its suppliers. And one of the things that I didn't like is Kodak really didn't run its business well. They, they struggled to be profitable. They were hemorrhaging cash, hemorrhaging employees. They were letting people go. They were getting beat up in the marketplace. And so rather than sit and go, we've got to fix our own business, they'd lean on their suppliers. And it was one way for them to try to make a couple extra bucks was to say, look, supplier, we're not going to pay you in 30 days. We're going to pay you in 90 days. And every year we want a 5% reduction in your rates to us and your costs. I mean, they just squeeze. Their purchasing people became really good at trying to squeeze you, nickel and dime you. And, and so my feeling was like, they just don't want to run their business well. So they're expecting me to make up the gap that they struggle to make up on their own. They're, they're expecting me to be the one to finance their crappy decision-making. And so I just said, I'm done with it. We've got to get off the Kodak teat. We've got to get off the Kodak trough and, and find good, profitable companies. The other thing that I found very frustrating with Kodak was you might do a little two, $3,000 job. Maybe they said, hey, can you put together some type of PowerPoint uh, slide deck for us, make a template, and put together a slide deck. We've got some sales presentation. You know, we've got a budget of, say, three dollars to $5,000. Well, yeah, that's good work. We'll do it. Love it. So typically in a project like that, you might get, I don't know, one, two, three people involved on the client side, maybe the main person you're working with, maybe the sales executive that's going to be giving the presentation, maybe a marketing person making sure that you're obeying the brand specs. And this is not an exaggeration. You get a little three to $5,000 job from Kodak, and that's a little job. You're running a multi-million dollar agency. That's a little job. And then you get like 20 different people, almost 30 different people from Kodak chiming in. You ever get these email chains where one person sends an email, they send it out, and then everybody just starts commenting on everybody else's email? And you get this email that's just pages and pages long, and it's indented. Every time someone, you know, there's indent in different text colors, and it's cascading down. And everybody's just chiming in. There's all these different middle managers and supervisors and peons and, and, and bootlickers and so on chiming in on all the changes that they think. You know, could you change this and tweak that? And, and, then, I'm, and, then, and then I'm supposed to sit as the account executive. I mean, I own the company, but I'm managing the account and go through and catch every little change. Well, first of all, it's designed by committee. It's ridiculous. I mean, you get the worst outcome when all kinds of people get to give their two cents and their two cents has to be listened to. And because Kodak had such a culture at the time of everyone fearful for their job and trying to justify their ex the expense of paying their salary, everybody had to be hands-on. Everybody had to chime in. Everybody had to change something. And it was just, it was just ridiculous. And, and on the other hand, 
the company wasn't like, hey, look, we know we're a pain in the ass to work with. We know that we've got some issues. We know that we're squeezing you for dollars. We know that we're unreasonable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So please, uh, we'll be flexible here. We'll be grateful. We'll have a good attitude about this. Thank you for helping us. No, their attitude sucked. Hey, we're Kodak. You should be grateful to work for us. And I was just like, you know what? I've had it. I've had it with Kodak. So I sat down with the team and said, we're done. We got to get off the Kodak teat. This is years, you know, this is before the whole 2008 meltdown of the market. So I work really hard. I'm out there selling. We pick up uh, great companies like Wegmans Food Products, rebrand their whole organic line, do all kinds of packaging for them, uh, for their premium, premium products. We pick up Fisher-Price toys. We're doing all kinds of branding and packaging work for them. I got a great client over there throwing us all kinds of work. We're picking up local high-tech manufacturing companies. We're picking up healthcare companies. We're just doing all kinds of great stuff. And so 2008 hits. We get murdered like everybody else. We come out of 2008, 2009. We've rebuilt, and I've got a good little business going. So here I am, 2012, I'm finally gonna take a break. It's been bloody murder. Forgive me for those of you in the, uh, in, in the UK, but it's been bloody murder we, in India. We finally get through this thing and I'm gonna take a trip. We're gonna go to South Africa. It's been 10, 11 years for me since I've visited my wife's family. We're gonna take our kids. The kids are now teenagers. We're getting to the point where this might be our last big trip as a family. And I'm gonna take three weeks of traveling South Africa. I'm gonna take a six week trip. Three weeks will just be on vacation traveling and three weeks will be working remotely so that my family can have a month and a half. I mean, we work so hard for this trip. And we're sitting in the airport in Dulles in DC, getting ready to fly out. We've got our, we left Rochester, we got into Dulles. And you know how in the airport they run CNN around the clock. And we're sitting there in the morning, early morning in Dulles, waiting for our flight to leave later that afternoon to South Africa. And across the news comes this big headline, Kodak files bankruptcy protection. Kodak's going bankrupt. And my wife, this is 2012. Now we're about to take this big trip. And you got to understand, this was a brutal period of years. Like we had to hump for two years. It's like, it was so hard getting out of that economic crash. And here we are sitting on the other side of it, ready to finally take a vacation. Finally, after years and years of no vacation. And my wife looks at me, her eyes as big as saucers, and she's like, oh my gosh, are we going to be okay? Like, we're just about to fly out in a few hours. Has This is going to destroy our, your company. Like, are we going to be okay? Then I just looked at her and I said, honey, I haven't done a Kodak job in two years. They don't owe me a nickel. This doesn't affect me in the least. I had the biggest grin a man could have at the time. And I was like, finally, Gaston, you did it right. You saw ahead. You made the right moves and you got free. So yeah, that's, that's just a little experience with Kodak. But um, I know I'm dragging them pretty hard, but uh, this kind of leads up to my thoughts on, you know, should they get this cash and what are my thoughts on that? Let's take a look at some more comments. Uh, Pines with Zero says, he commits. I commit to improving my English. I, I don't think you need to. I think your English is fantastic. And he says, is that Greenfield or do they need uh, to M&A into that? I think it's Greenfield and I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, and I guess I'll answer that now. Uh, it's Greenfield because a lot of Kodak's business was chemical, uh, was chemistry. Uh, the whole film, you know, making film and the whole processing film is all chemistry. As a matter of fact, I want to say in 1920, after World War I, George Eastman uh, started a second company. It was a subsidiary of Kodak called Eastman Chemical Company. Uh, it's since been spun off. I think in the 90s it was spun off from Kodak. 
But Eastman Chemical Company was all focused on kind of so they could be vertically integrated, creating all the chemistry that was needed by Kodak to do the film and film developing process that they did. And so they do things like uh, all kinds of chemicals. And this Eastman Chemical Company, now here's the irony. This was started back in 1920 by George Eastman. It's headquartered somewhere in Tennessee. I want to say, and I'll look it up. I've got it here. So Eastman Chemical, Kingsport, Tennessee is its headquarters. Publicly traded company. Now remember Kodak, I mentioned to you before this whole deal with the Trump administration was market cap was $100 million. Uh, Eastman Chemical's current market cap, unrelated to Kodak, 100%, $10.14 billion market cap. It was spun off in 1994. Uh, its 2019 sales were $9.3 billion in sales. And uh, it's got almost 15,000 employees, probably about 15,000 employees, manufacturing all over the world, multiple locations. So that's, that's Eastman chemical company, a former subsidiary of Kodak, Eastman Kodak Company, spun off in 1994. And uh, so so here's where I'm going with this. Kodak has a history with chemistry. And that's the one thing. A lot of people in the marketplace, why Kodak? This makes no sense. They did cameras. Well, they, they made cameras, but it was all about the film. It was all about the chemistry. So Kodak does have a lot of experience in the chemicals, chemical formulation, chemical engineering business. Now that said, yes, uh, by the way, Dale Spoonie says, I'm here. Welcome, Dale. I'm here for the drugs and rock and roll. I'm only here for the drugs and rock and roll. Well, we're talking about the drugs now and, uh, and getting all this money, a wash of money. That's the rock and roll, baby. I, I wonder the, the parties are happening. But Dale, welcome. Dale says uh, earlier, he said, hi, Mike, I guess Kodak moment meant something totally different to you. Yes, that's right. And, and look, I know I'm being hard on Kodak. The reason I'm being hard on it, it'd be one thing if Kodak kept screwing up in the local marketplace in Rochester and the local media held it accountable. But it, it enjoyed decades, decades from the 80s all the way through of the, the media, the local media treating Kodak like it could do no wrong. It, it was treated for decades as, oh, Kodak, the, you know, Kodak woke up this morning and saw the sun was shining. Hey, everybody, we should be happy. Kodak says everything's going to be okay. And it was obvious. I mean, I, I'm not some rocket scientist. I'm not some, uh, I just didn't want to take the other side of the, the argument just to be a difficult. You know, everyone's going long and I'm going to go short. I, it was like just saying that the emperor had no clothes. Everybody's walking around saying Kodak's great. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing it. And it was frustrating to me. So yeah, I, it is personal for me. Anybody that says his business isn't personal uh, has never owned a business. <laughs> it is personal. Kodak never hurt me directly. They never did anything to me. I just was frustrated that here you've got a company who had everything. They had everything. They'd figured out the technology for digital uh, camera making, for digital photo photography. They had a corner on the market for film. They, they, I mean, what more could you ask for? And they just squandered it. They, they played it safe. They were, they, they were short-term. And, and when you're short-term, you lose. And the Kodak's a great example of that. So yeah, now they're getting almost a billion-dollar loan, but I just don't think that that's going to change the fundamental problem with Kodak, and that is its culture, its leadership, its, its, uh, its way of doing things. You know, culturally, Kodak is very conservative. Rochester, New York, is a progressive town politically, very progressive. Transgenderism, gay marriage, uh, you know, education, you know, pick even the churches here are very progressive. Like everything's progressive. Everything's liberal in Rochester. It's hard to find conservatives. They're here, but the conservatives in Rochester tend to lay low. They keep their mouth shut because they know they're a minority. Keep your head down. But 
the business culture in Rochester is very conservative. It doesn't like to take risks. It likes to it likes incremental changes. It, it, it's not as innovative as it could be and so on. And a lot of that, I don't know how much of that was an impact on Kodak or how much Kodak had an impact on the marketplace. But, uh, but Kodak, very conservative culture. Um, and that's that. Boy, I got going there on a rant, didn't I? Let's take a look here. Uh, Pauline says, but how do you really feel? I know, I feel like I'm kind of holding back on a lot of this, aren't I? And I apologize for that. So this is going a little long. You guys are like, jeepers, creepers, bro. Where are we going with this? So why Kodak? I think the answer is, ultimately, this is a job creating and a repatriating uh, strategic needs move on the Trump administration's side. I think there are other companies out there that could probably take this on much better than Kodak. I have a client that does chemical formulating, privately owned company, uh, probably some more revenue to Kodaks, I would imagine. And uh, they could take something like this on. You know, they'd have to expand. They'd have to, you know, they'd have to change some of their lines or add capacity. You know, why did Kodak get this? I think Kodak was well-placed. You've got board members that are politically con connected. You've got a brand. Uh, there's some pride in there. You know, there's some nationalistic pride. Kodak is this brand that I think the Trump administration and Americans in general would love to see come back. Um, but ultimately, they do have a bit of a heritage in, in chemical formulating. And that's really what this is. This isn't about pharmaceuticals. If, if people are getting wound up saying, well, they don't know anything about pharmaceuticals. Yeah, this is about chemistry. Now, the chemistry is going to have to meet certain standards and regulations to be pharma, pharmaceutical grade. And I think that's where there's going to be some issues. The other thing to keep in mind, uh, Kodak has tons of property in Rochester. And the, and the property used to almost always have buildings, big, beautiful, multi-million dollar buildings on them. Over the last couple decades, Kodak's been in the process of, of leveling these buildings, knocking them down. And the reason is, as their businesses were shrinking and as their fortunes were plummeting, you know, they were laying people off. They didn't have a need for these buildings. They didn't have to populate them. They didn't have the staff. Oh, we don't need that R&D center anymore. Oh, we don't need that administrative center anymore. Oh, we don't need, you know, they got, so you pay taxes, and, and New York taxes are pretty high. You're paying taxes in the state of New York for property. It's high. So what Kodak would do is if you've got a, a plot of land with a $3 million facility on it that's sitting empty, they'd just knock it down. It was the craziest thing, beautiful stuff that, you, that I'd witnessed throughout my life being built. You know, buildings that go, you know, from before my time, but a lot of buildings that were built in the 70s, 80s, and 90s were being leveled. I ride my motorcycle through some of these areas up Dewey Avenue near Lake, uh, through Kodak Park area. There are big, amazing buildings, different architectural styles, some of them fantastic, some of them conservative, just really f fascinating bulldoze to the ground because now Kodak says, well, this piece of land's not worth that much. I mean, it's empty, just an empty lot with weeds growing on it. And so they, they lower their tax burden. So meanwhile, you know, the, the, the local media and the local politicians, everybody crowing about how great Kodak is, but meanwhile, they weren't doing any favors. Uh, they weren't throwing any extra money. And I can't blame them. They, they shouldn't throw tax money away if they don't have to. But, um, but that's what was happening. So I think that the reason this goes to Kodak is their chemistry background and the background of their business. The concern I have, um, the concern I have is this culture. You know, I've spent an hour dragging Kodak. What does a company like this do when it gets almost $800 million to work with? You know, how, what kinds of strings are attached to this? What kinds of management uh, 
responsibilities, obligations are attached to this? What kind of reporting is going to have to happen to the American people and, and to the government? How are we going to be able to keep Kodak honest? I don't think that Kodak is a dishonest company. You can look at this move by the top guys and say, well, they're dishonest. This is just how the game is played. If you don't like that, we should change the game. And that's a different discussion. I don't, I'm not accusing these guys of being crooks. Uh, they're doing something that's legal. I would say it's not necessarily ethical. I would say it's not necessarily moral, but it's legal. Okay, fine. Let's put that to the side. My concern isn't that they're robber barons and they're just going to, I mean, they will. They're going to they're gonna suck this dry. My concern is this company has a track record of failing. This company has a track record of not being able to pivot. This company has a track record of not being able to innovate. And this company even has a track record of being lazy. You know, they, they got a windfall they, because they had the technology that went into digital cameras. They were able to sue like Panasonic, uh, not Panasonic. What was the, um, uh, what, what's the... Uh, instant, instant cameras. Boy, I'm going to go blank now. Uh, what are the instant cameras back when I was a kid? It'll come to me just now. But essentially, Kodak was able to sue everybody that was using digital camera technology, like a Apple and all these other guys that were using digital technology. They were able to sue other companies like Panasonic. Was it Panasonic? No, it wasn't Panasonic. This is dry. Polaroid. Pauline, thank you so much. Bless you, my friend. Polaroid. Boy, I'm really struggling. But uh, uh, they were able to sue these companies and get a settlement where they were getting millions and millions of dollars in because they owned the patents on some of this technology that was being used. And they took that and did nothing with it. They just squandered it. It's just, they just used it. They just burned it up. It's just like, oh, good, more cash coming in. That, that helps us. But they never did anything with it. They didn't use it to get the company healthy. And so my concern is a company like Kodak gets this. They're going to use it for infrastructure. They're going to set up new facilities on their existing land. They're going to use a lot of their engineering know-how, their chemical know-how, and so on. That's all fine. But I just look at the track history of this company, and I just question, how are we going to hold Kodak accountable? This is great for Rochester. In the short term, it's great for my hometown. It's great. So if you're a Rochesterian listening to this, and you're like, Mike, you're such a jerk. What about us? Hey, it's great for us. But it's a temporary great. This doesn't change Rochester. This adds some jobs. It injects some temporary life into Kodak. But my question is like, what will Kodak turn this into? What will this become for Kodak down the road? What will this become for Rochester? What will this become for America? If we're saying this is so critical that America has to take back its capabilities to produce these things, then why not let the free market solve that problem? Why pump up a body that's practically brain dead and is on life support. Why not just let that thing die? Pull the plug and let nature take its course. And let a younger, stronger, or more mature and healthier proven company come to the table or groups of companies come to the table and say, yeah, we would love to help America become great again. I don't think Kodak has earned the right I don't think Kodak has proven itself. It's just the opposite. Now, there are a lot of people that had their careers at Kodak. A lot of people have ties to Kodak, and they go, look, I'm, I'm nostalgic. I'm a Rochesterian. I was an engineer. I came to Rochester from Wisconsin. I'm so glad you know, Kodak gave me a great life. That's fine. But at the end of the day, uh, if we really believe in this idea of red in tooth and, cl red in tooth and cloth, we're really uh, believing, embrace this idea of evolutionary reality of society, if we're really materialists, if we're really free market libertarians, then we got to say, hey, this company has not proven that it has the right to be at the table. And I'm not accusing anybody of doing anything wrong, although uh, I think there are going to be a number of people outside the Kodak board that are going to be in a little bit of trouble. There was a huge surge the day before this trade happened. Now, I think some people are watching 
the Kodak board give Jim all that money and said something's afoot. I think there's some people that had inside track, and I think there's going to be some news down the road on insider trading. Uh, for people that had started investing like crazy, I'd be curious to see where this lands. But, um, but yeah, I don't think that Kodak has earned the right. And so for me, uh, I'm happy for Rochester in the short term. I hope this helps real people with real jobs. I hope this creates an opportunity for a future. But I'm skeptical. Everything that I've seen, everything that I've experienced with Kodak tells me if I, if I base my judgment on past um, performance, I look forward and say, this is a company that doesn't know how to manage its way out of a wet paper bag. And I know that's harsh. And maybe people will be throwing tomatoes at my house later tonight that are local and, and listening to this. But I'm sorry. I, I love Kodak. And I'm angry at Kodak because I've always wanted it to win. I've always wanted it to do well. I never had a chip on my shoulder against Kodak. But you know, when you live in the city that creates the film, and you go to the store, you go to Wegmans, you go to Kodak, you, you live in the t- Kodak city, Rochester, and you go to a, a Rochester supermarket, Wegmans, it's done well all throughout the U.S. now, the East Coast mainly, and is a case study all throughout the wor- world for, for grocery stores and supermarkets. And you want to buy a roll of Kodak film back in the day, and you're charged a premium. Nowhere else did you pay as much money for a roll of Kodak film than you did in Rochester. They'd step on our necks. And why? Because they were the home team and they knew that you were going to, they knew nobody would buy Fuji. If you live in Rochester, you're going to pay premium. So essentially it was a tax on their own workers and their own workers' neighbors and their own workers' family members to say, look, where are you going to go? We're Kodak. You love us. You're not going to go anywhere else. And they just charge a premium. And so, and so at the end of the day, uh, Rochesterians were paying through the nose. I just feel like a company that does that is short-sighted. A company that does that will eat its own young. A company that does that is lazy and just tries to suck the profit out wherever it can. It's the financialization of a business. And so for me, I am skeptical that Kodak is going to use this money prudently. I'm skeptical that they're going to be able to bring anything to the market that's good for America. But time will tell. And I would love to be proven wrong. I'm not. This is one of those things where I'm making a prediction and I'm going to be so proud of myself if I'm right. I just look at the past and say, this is where I think this is going. Guys, I hope this podcast has been useful. Now, if you're listening, I'm going to end the podcast. But if you're on the live stream, we're going to jump into question and answering, uh, question and answer here for a little bit, have a little bit of fun together. Uh, If you want to participate in that next time, just make sure to jump on the podcast live. If not, you can always catch this podcast anywhere fine podcasts are provided. It is the currency. You can get on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Guys, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode.